Welcome back everybody to yet another episode here on the Desi VC podcast. I am your host Akash Pat and today we have an interesting guest on the show. We've seen angels and VCs support and foster entrepreneurship and startups in India, but today we have a guest who is doing so through a foundation. Join me in welcoming my guest Monica Mehta, executive vice president at Wadwani Foundation. Monica heads the Wadwani NEN and Inspire programs of the foundation. She is an education entrepreneur and has completed her MBA from Thunderbird School of Global Management. Prior to joining the foundation, Monica was the director at Omidya Network where she spearheaded the EdTech investments and grants in India. Monica has also been the founding partner of Kaizen Private Equity, a 70 million dollar fund where she drove investments to the tune of 25 million dollars in the education and skilling sectors. Monica has also been the board member for reputed institutions like Akshara Foundation, Mount Litera School, Vardhana, Aspiring Minds, Calodex, and many others. I am very excited to speak to Monica today on the show and understand how foundations are playing a huge role in shaping the entrepreneurship ecosystem in the country. Let's head in and listen to Monica. Monica it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. I have been eagerly waiting for this conversation. So welcome to the DCVC podcast. Thanks Akash. I'm glad to be here too and I'm uh, I'm excited to see how this conversation unfolds. So Likewise, you know, typically I start most of my conversations by recapping 2020 because it's been one of those years, right? It's been so difficult and different for everybody. So talk to us a little bit about how things changed for you. both personally and professionally and how have you coped with all of the changes that have come about in the last 12 to 14 months i think um, professionally my biggest change has been no travel for someone that traveled 20 days a month uh, just being at home was really hard in the beginning because it's just something i was not used to Were you seem uh, happy about it you're smiling when you say that <laughs> no but now i'm really beginning to enjoy it every time the thought of travel comes up it's like oh my god we have to really pack a bag and go so in the beginning it was hard because it was something that you just used to so many years of your life just literally living out of a bag and um, so yeah it was it was hard just you know being at home and you know obviously there are the distractions of being at home as opposed to being in the office so you know professionally just um, trying to carve out that space physical space as well as time in the day to ensure that you you know you're giving yourself to work and you know you kind of you know uh, setting aside that time was hard in the beginning but i think over time we all got used to it right um but also then i think it all started getting morphed you know we were discussing this earlier and then uh, you know weekdays started becoming weekends and weekends started becoming weekdays and you know was very little time left for um, i think personal life Uh, but i think that uh, you know as a as an organization we decided that we are going to have at least one day in a week that's a no call day so everybody has some time to just get some downtime and uh, also focus on emails and other things uh, we also decided that we are going to put on our calendar some time off for lunch some time off for you know just other things in the day that we everyone needs to do in their day so i think we you know by the time it was september we all realized that this is not sustainable so we all kind of you know made some important changes so so that happened uh on 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 another note on the professional side you know most of our programs were analog and they were offline programs which we were doing in colleges and we decided to go digital 
So, you know, um, COVID forced us to do that. I mean, there was always a thought, but I think if, if COVID hasn't ha hadn't happened and we hadn't kind of, um, you know, um, had the lockdown, we wouldn't have realized what it means to do a direct to home or a direct to student model. So I think that was, that was a good thing that came out of it. And uh, on the personal side, I think um, I had a lot more time for reflection and a lot more time for family. I think that, um, and I have two kids, uh, 19 and 22, and growing up, I think they saw a lot of me gone away because of work and, and, and the fact that work took me out a lot. So it was a great time to just be here and then, you know, just bond with the whole family and spend a lot of time uh, doing things that I, including <laughs> just, you know, playing badminton outside the, you know, it's just things we haven't done in a long time. So, so it was a good time for recuperation as well. You bring up some really good points about work-life balance and how that is something that people have started giving more importance to, which often got ignored in the past. Like, you know, people work 15, 16 hour work days, but they didn't really realize the kind of impact that it had one on themselves and two more on the family and people around them. And that's one of the things that the pandemic has actually put a spotlight on. And I'm really glad that people are giving more importance to work-life balance and even taking, carving some time out for things that are really important. You mentioned that, you know, you have that one hour slot where people are just taking lunch breaks or just spending time with themselves. I personally do, I, I personally have scheduled my workouts during the day itself because my days, I mean, as you can see, we're recording this late in the night. Yeah. My days go out at about 3.30 in the morning. Wow. So I'm literally doing about 17, 18 hour days. So I need to get that workout in. I need to get a little bit of me time, which doesn't really happen if you don't really schedule and slot that in. And with, as you said, with days morphed and hours morphed, it's really difficult to find that balance. Yeah. And um, I'm glad that you were able to find a little bit of time for yourself, your family. I'm sure they've, they're very happy to have you uh, in and around. One of the things I really want to talk to you about, and you brought that up as well, was the change in format, both on the, at that the foundation, right? Talk to us a little bit about that. How is the foundation coped with the changes, not just the people, but how has the whole program changed? We'll come to your background in a little bit, but I just want to understand how has that impacted you more than anything else? Like, you know, being at the at the helm, has that really put a lot of pressure? Uh, did you guys take some time apart to think about what's the best strategy? Was it more of an evolutionary model? Like how did the last 12 months, if you could just take us back and, you know, the thought process that went through with the leadership team and how the processes and frameworks that came in place and more importantly, operationally, how did you guys execute that? Yeah, so I think that, uh, you know, at the foundation, uh, one of the things that, I mean, so so at the core, our vision and mission is job creation at scale, right? And really supporting livelihoods. So given that, uh, I think it was really important for us to think about what, how will livelihoods and life impacted because of COVID, right? Uh, that was really at the core of our discussions and thoughts as soon as uh, COVID hit us in India and, and the lockdown happened. And uh, I think we, uh, we decided that we want to be out there um, on the front lines, really supporting and helping as best as we can for the, uh, you know, for livelihoods as well as for the economy to be revived. Um, we had something that we developed and, and put out called the Sahaita program. So it was a pretty large program that had a large outlay of, of funds, uh, both for small and medium sized businesses that were likely to be hit a lot. Um, a skilling program, especially for healthcare workers, because uh, it was more than ever now that we needed, you know, um, a lot of healthcare workers in India to support uh, the growing crisis in the country. Uh, and, uh, you know, because of loss of jobs, we knew that if we had um, entrepreneurship programs that uh, young um, students, but also the youth in the country, 
being able to access easily, we'd be able to give them a pathway to um, a livelihood that may not necessarily need them to, you know, uh, seek a job because there were not so many jobs available. In fact, people were losing jobs, if anything, right? So the entire strategy revolved around what can we do um, to be of support to um, everyone, healthcare workers, youths, small and medium-sized businesses out there uh, in a way that, you know, um, that can help them tide over this crisis. That, that was the whole um, ethos of what we were trying to do. Uh, in terms of operation and execution, it was all about now going digital. So a lot of our programs were offline, uh, where uh, in some cases hybrid as well. Uh, but all in all, most of our programs are really high touch. Now, I wanted to just interrupt you for a minute. And, you know, you spoke about losing jobs and that being one of the most important things that the whole country faced last year. And very critical. And a lot of people had a lot of challenges. Did you at the leadership have to face that decision yourself, the tough task of analyzing and seeing do we have to like manage the number of people that we have on the team? And if so, you as a leader, how did you really tackle that question? Yeah, it's a good question to, uh, to which I have um, an answer that probably most people won't have as an answer. I was not forced into those, those decisions, um, Akash, because um, we are a foundation um, and uh, our founder, Ramesh Vadwani, who's a tech-based entrepreneur based in the Bali, uh, has uh, demarcated a, a lot of his fortune into the Vadwani Foundation, um, you know, um, operations. And um, uh, since we deal with livelihoods, uh, he was kind enough to ensure that uh, nobody had to um, uh, had to undergo a you know a job loss. So That's luckily, we did not have to make that decision. Uh, but uh, at the same time, everyone had to step in and spend several more hours just to make sure that we could extend a helping hand to those that were in that situation. So we definitely had to motivate all our team members to say, you know what, uh, feel gratitude for the fact that you don't have to have that problem. Uh, feel gratitude for the fact that there is no job loss on our side. But at the same time, let us be those people who can be there for the people who have had this situation come to them. And so um, we roll up our sleeves and literally most of us were working at least 15 to 16 hours a day uh, for the first six to eight months to get all of the new programs together. The Sahaita program that I talked about for, uh, you know, skilling healthcare workers, for supporting small and medium sized businesses in India, for going digital with our entrepreneurship programs. That entire uh, process of uh, strategizing to execution and operations uh, took six to eight months. So now I can say life has come back to some kind of normalcy, whether it's more like a 10, 12 hour day. But those days for those first six to eight months, it was literally everybody was working 15, 16 hours. So that was our way to give back while we didn't have to go through, um, uh, you know, job losses at our foundation. Um, I mean, you know, our founder was really generous. But uh, but uh, we, we, we did um, use that time, energy and, you know, put in the effort to support others that did. Uh, talk to us a little bit about the foundation. Um, how did this come about and what kind of impact have you been creating over the last few years? So the foundation is uh, primarily created by Romesh uh, with, like I said, the single-minded vision of job creation and, you know, supporting livelihoods in a family of four, right? I mean, that's how we, we in a very short way, kind of summarize what we do and what we, what we uh, work every day towards. Um, I think as an entrepreneur himself and having seen successes and failures, 
you realize that you know entrepreneurship is a hard journey it is not something you you know you undertake and then i'm sure i know you've been an entrepreneur uh, in so many ways and and i've been an entrepreneur and you know that uh, you spend so many sleepless nights right just um, wondering <clears throat> what step to take next <clears throat> excuse me and and during that time you sometimes wish somebody was there to handhold you you know maybe somebody was there to give you some sense of uh if you have a hurdle or a problem what would be the best way to overcome it or what path should one take right and uh, he knew that during his own journey he had had so many moments when he you know really wished that someone's there to help him handhold him support him and show him the path uh and i think with that whole vision and mission in mind and, and job creation in mind he decided that he would set up advani foundation and the entrepreneurship program that i currently lead at the foundation is our legacy program that's where we started 15 16 years ago and while we have many more programs and initiatives today um uh, the national entrepreneurship network which is the entrepreneurship programs that we run globally is is our flagship um, uh, program so really it was set up to support young students a to get inspired um, to take up entrepreneurship as a journey as opposed to being job seekers because so many of our young students land up being job seekers uh and then uh, show them the way and handhold them right i mean once they've undertaken that journey and they've chosen to take that path like i said earlier it's not an easy path and to really support them in their journey and then hopefully if some of them became unicorns and some of them became really successful and scaled that's where we can eventually see job creation um so that was really the ethos and and the reason why it was started over the past 16 17 years i think we've uh, touched a million students globally um a lot of them have undertaken the entrepreneurial path um we have been uh, more focused on tracking our impact over the past maybe 5 to 7 years um and i think that uh, we can proudly say that we have at least about 10 to 12000 young ventures uh, that continue to uh, you know flourish and do well and uh, you know and uh, continue to uh, you know create jobs um and and so that's really been our journey but you know just very quickly without uh, you know side tracking our conversation we do other things like you know we we help with skilling so we we uh, we have the youth in india with all sorts of skilling programs we have a program that is called advantage that's dedicated to um, small and medium sized businesses and we have something called the venture fast track program that is specifically focused on incubators and accelerators uh, supporting them to um, you know really um, take their incubators through a very very strong program such that they are successful um early stage startups so so all of that um together is what constitutes vadvani foundation today now you sit at this beautiful intersection of like the next generation of talent that's entering the workforce and people who are already in the workforce right now what are the challenges that you've been seeing in terms of bridging the gap where are the opportunities for you you did mention that the realistic or or a very ambitious goal is to like have great companies come out of these programs students coming out and building potentially i mean you never know like unicorn companies right but that means you're also waiting for a longer time here you know pretty much like what vcs do vcs have to wait for a long time for a company to go on to become successful and you have to invest across a lot of other um, you you probably get one or two hits when you when you invest in about 50 to 100 companies you know that very well yourself it's very similar or maybe it's exponentially different when you have a bunch of students involved in the program so no this, this is a great question so at the foundation the way we think about it is is twofold one is to support those students that undertake this journey and um and are really serious about it and and want to continue down the path 
some of the students take up these programs as part of their you know college journey right it's just one other interesting program that you want to take up somebody in college today might take up digital marketing or they might take up uh, i don't know sociology sometimes they just want to learn about a subject it's not that you know everyone who takes up one course in sociology necessarily wants to become a sociologist you know so so a lot of them take up entrepreneurship um just to to understand a little bit more about it not necessarily because they want to be an entrepreneur in the future and we're okay with that we're hoping that it's an 80 20 split uh and uh, 80% of the students that undertake our programs eventually just get inspired towards entrepreneurship uh one of two things will happen either they will uh be entrepreneurial when they get to their workplace if they are job seekers and they will have that entrepreneurial spirit that they bring to the workplace um and the second piece is even if they don't want to immediately go down that path they will uh work for a few years maybe 5 or 7 years and at some point later in their life they might undertake the entrepreneurial journey because there's been some kind of a spark then that's been ignited you know where they thought okay you know i won't do this today um uh, today i will go and you know get to a workplace and you know get a 9 to 5 job but some day in the future this is exciting enough and i know that i will i will find that path you know when the time is right um so i think that we we are okay with those 80% just being inspired a lot of our work at the college level is for inspiring a young generation right and then the other 20% that are, are the more serious ones that really know that this is the path they want to pursue they don't want a 9 to 5 job they want to solve an important problem they want to really solve the pain points of the communities that they happen to be in uh we handhold them not only through the program but we have a lot of alumni engagement program so that even beyond the program uh a we handhold them and support them uh, we call it ecosystem development and mentorship and our impact team then uh continues to stay in touch with these ventures to see how they're doing both from a impact perspective because like i said for us um impact measurement is job creation and venture creation uh but also to understand you know uh how much of their success do they attribute to the foundation right uh you know and and how much do they feel we supported them in in their journey how meaningful was our contribution to that journey so that's how we measure impact for ourselves um but just very quickly i want to just throw in the fact that while you're completely right that this effort that we're putting in today has a very long term trajectory right before we can see the the, the true fruits of our labor uh that is why we now have the advantage program where we directly help small and medium sized businesses so that we can fasten the pace of helping you know uh job creation because that's where you know people have already gotten to a certain size and if they grew multifold the the uh the path to job creation would be that much more uh, effective so we kind of try to do both so that we are creating the next generation of entrepreneurs but we are helping the existing generation of entrepreneurs as well now to do all of the things that you previously mentioned you need a village that comes together and you need support from ecosystem partners you need a lot of people really nurturing and enabling you to build what you're trying to build now in terms of that how easy or difficult was it in the early days you know the startup bubble as they call it began sometime around 2010 2011 in india which kind of was like the right timing for you as well because that's kind of where you you could have really leverage the momentum that the whole uh, movement in india uh, was 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 gaining were you able to initially before the whole bubble kind of like started uh, you know popping up 
did, what are the challenges that you faced initially in terms of convincing people and letting them know that this is something that we need to be investing in and this is going to give us returns, but at a later stage for sure. And how those conversations evolved now when you have conversations with potential stakeholders, maybe partners, maybe ecosystem, uh, maybe even people from the government who want to perhaps work with you. How could, could you maybe draw com- contrast and compare how those conversations would look like back then and how do they look like today when you have when you yeah. speak to them? So in 2005, although I was not the one that started it, uh, you know, it was my predecessors. Uh, I do know for a fact that, you know, um, entrepreneurship and entrepreneurship education was very new to the country, right? Uh, uh, I mean, entrepreneurs... Uh, uh, by default, uh, you know, landed up as part of that journey, right? I mean, there was not a very um, uh, strong framework in place for how to develop entrepreneurs and, you know, how to, how to kind of develop a, uh, an ecosystem of entrepreneurship in the country. So I think at that time, there was a lot of conversations with existing entrepreneurs about how they can give back, how they can be mentors, uh, you know, create a, a mentor network. Um, uh, there was a lot of conversation around... Um, uh, you know, having events that sparked and inspired entrepreneurship, uh, we did not have programs as much at the time, right? It was more thought leadership, just so that uh, the ecosystem gets developed. There is a sense of understanding that entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship education, and support of entrepreneurs through mentorship is a is a critically important piece to have. So the first five to seven years was, you know, developing all of that. Uh, the programs that we run today were, uh, were more recent, right? They're more from the past eight to nine years that they've been running. And, uh, you know, I think um, luckily for us, um, it's also so happened that, you know, the, the entire uh, ecosystem around us has developed so rapidly, including, you know, the, the, the focus that the government has had through Startup India uh, and all the other initiatives that they've had, uh, you know, through Atal Innovation Mission, with all the incubators and accelerators that are being funded. Uh, that now this is not a conversation, a new conversation anymore. Uh, in fact, we have so many people reaching out to us saying, you know, you all have been the pioneers of, of uh, this education and this kind of work. So can we partner with you in some way, you know, and it could be like a Kerala startup mission. It could be, uh, you know, Adal Innovation Mission that we work with. Uh, it, it could be private colleges. Uh, you know, it could be state-run colleges. We have people from all over India now reaching out, out to us and and like, you know, we also work globally in 16 countries. So this is not restricted to just India alone. So now it's become reverse, right? So in the beginning, it was about developing the ecosystem and getting people to understand the importance of it. Today, I think uh, that has been established. And I think it's now about just uh, really forging partnerships that can enable us to scale uh, from there on. It's very interesting you bring all of these points up. I personally feel that programs like these um, you know, they're very difficult one to bring to life and more difficult to actually sustain over a longer time. And the kind of work that you've been doing is commendable for sure. But at the same time, it provides a blueprint for other people in the industry to take a leaf of your success and, and try and replicate that. Because we need more of this, right? That's the only way India as an ecosystem can one, stop the brain drain that we've been complaining about for the last 30, 40 years. And more importantly, as you've been mentioning uh, multiple times on this uh, podcast as well, is that you can create more jobs. And that's one way that you can actually boost the economy. And you're starting off at the grassroots level, and that's kind of like worked for you, and you have a model that's actually working. What's the next chapter here? Uh, you know, you've been talking a whole lot about creating jobs. What does the foundation look forward to? Um, does 
is there anything else that we can look forward to in terms of beyond fostering the the grassroots level and ensuring that students are giving or getting access to resources knowledge information and more importantly the infrastructure for success so i think at the foundation uh, you know the one thing that that uh, we have realized is that there is only so much we can do by ourselves right so like i mentioned earlier i think forging partnerships with um different institutions both government and non government that can really enable us to scale together is something that we're strongly looking at right also internally we've started a fund although we are a non for profit and we're a foundation we have the vadwani catalyst fund that we've begun um it's a small fund today uh, but the intention is to um invest in ventures um and institutions uh that uh, enable job creation so we have moved from thinking about it uh, as an operations i mean an operations driven foundation where we are doing most of these programs ourselves to thinking about how can we partner with others how can we invest in others how can we do um, work in a way that um, enables the scale to you know be multifold right so that we can reach our goals faster so today we do invest in companies that enable job creation we do invest in institutions in some cases these are grants uh which uh, which spur innovation so for example in iit mumbai uh you know um which is also a founders alma mater uh, there is a substantial amount of grant being given for their um, scientific innovations right so we want to do everything we can do to spur uh, job creation and innovation um not only by ourselves through the programs we do on the ground because this is grassroots level work and program work that we do like you said but we want to create as many partnerships as possible that can enable this to spread and scale as much as we can in the future so does that also mean that from a vc perspective when we talk about pre seed seed and you're catching the talent early you're catching these people early are you also trying to recreate the same model but with a very different approach from a foundation perspective where you're in a way you're actually providing and creating talent and then equipping the talent with the resources to go out and build companies and do you see the foundation or the fund investing in the people that you have coached or is it more broad at this this point where you're looking at investments across the spectrum so at the moment it's pretty broad and we're looking at investments across the spectrum we haven't um um narrowed it down to investing in just um you know ventures coming out of either our incubation programs to venture fast track or out of our you know student campus ventures coming out through our entrepreneurship programs uh but uh as we go along you know um it is evident to the leadership at the foundation that everything we do at the foundation is a continuum right uh you know we 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 have student campus ventures oftentimes that get incubated in incubators which is like i said part of our venture fast track program often times these venture fast track uh, incubators when they get out they become ripe for the programs that we have at advantage which supports small and medium sized businesses so so all of this is a continuum right and therefore uh, we are increasingly uh, working together as a leadership team to see where do we have synergies where we can you know cross pollinate and use each other's teams and ideas uh, to do more work together so definitely the catalyst fund that i talked about in the future i think as we grow and we have more um, interesting ideas and ventures coming out of our programs in house at the foundation that will definitely create a very strong deal pipeline uh, for the catalyst fund as it grows there undoubtedly uh, you know um, 
uh, why not look in your own backyard, right? As opposed to trying and, and, and going all over the place. But for now, we are, we're open to all sorts of, um, all sorts of companies that, that um, fit our strategic frame, framework for investment um, at the foundation. Uh, but I think in the future, for sure, um, a lot of our um, in-house ventures, young startups, companies that are coming out of our programs will also be alive. I want to come back to this and figure out the thesis at a later point, but I think this is a good segue. Talk about your background, right? There are certain things that you spoke about that's worth spending some time upon. I mean, you've, we discussed this uh, a little while ago. You've kind of come the full circle. You've been a founder. You've gone out and been part of a VC fund. Um, you've been an impact investor. And now you've come back and you're working and building a foundation, which is actually nurturing talent and making and bringing forth the next generation of entrepreneurs in the country. Take us through that journey. Like what made you jump from one to another and how did that all make sense today when you look back in retrospect? Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting question, Akash. And I'm going to say this. Um, I just think my life has been a series of serendipitous situations. Uh, if I look back, I've not planned for any of this, honestly. It is not a planned approach to, to where I am today. Uh, but it's definitely been a very, very interesting and, and like you rightly put it, like, you know, come a full circle. So I think, uh, you know, my my interest in education and, and 20 years that, that I've now worked has uh, been in education. So uh, I, I, I went to the U.S. to grab an MBA simply because I was just not enjoying the investment banking, uh, you know, uh, jobs that I was in finding myself in before that. Uh, and when I came back, I just knew, I just knew that I wanted to um, create some kind of impact in the space of education in India, right? I knew that I enjoyed my education thoroughly in the US. I knew that I could bring back best practices. I knew that I could somehow impact the sector. I had no background in it. I had no idea uh, what I would do and how I would do, but I just came back uh, after graduation, packing my bag saying, well, I'm going to do something. Um, so I think the best thing, uh, given also that I had a young family at the time, the best thing was to kind of, you know, jump into entrepreneurship because that would have even given me the flexibility. Little did I know at that time that entrepreneurship is even more daunting because it's like 24-7, right? But that was the first eight, nine years of my life, you know, um, starting an education company. And literally, I dabbled in everything, everything from um, K-12 to uh, higher ed to vocational training and education. Um and I think uh, it gave me a good insight into um, what works and doesn't work for an entrepreneur. Uh, of course, through my own successes and failures, it was evident to me, um, you know, what I could have done differently when I look back and, and how I could have made some decisions, um, uh, you know, looking at things a little differently than I had. Uh, I also um, learned to understand my own skills and, and, you know, my weaknesses as an entrepreneur. Uh, and I thought that, uh, you know, one of the things that really held me back uh, as an entrepreneur was really getting the right amount of funding because I was literally a bootstrapped um, startup for the first four to five years till I had a partner come in uh, who also brought in some capital and then we built out the company, right? Uh, and, I, and I then moved to Kaizen Private Equity uh, as a founding partner where I spent my next six and a half years simply because I wanted to be on the other side of things where I wanted to support young education companies that, um, that uh, you know, were looking for capital, were bootstrapped, but uh, just needed that additional, uh, you know, um, that additional capital to kind of just get to the next level, right? Um, and, uh, you know, we started off uh, thinking of ourselves as an operations-driven private equity fund. So it was 
uh, really clear to me that it was not just the capital that we wanted to provide to these companies, but also really, you know, uh, support them beyond the capital, right? And not just take a board seat, but actually support them, whether it was on the human resource side or on the operations side or, you know, opening networks um, and opening doors for them to be able to scale. Uh, and, and so that's what uh, excited me to take that next step, you know, when I sold my company to my existing partner and moved to Kaizen Private Equity. Um, and um, again, it was, it was like a startup because we were a first-time fund, um, you know, working out of a rickety office in um, South Mumbai uh, near Metro Cinema. Uh, for those that are familiar with Mumbai, you know, a rickety wooden staircase taking us up to the first floor. And uh, spent our first two years, you know, just creating a strategy for this fund, figuring out, uh, you know, what would our focus areas be, um, you know, going out there fundraising morning to uh, night every day. Uh, but yeah, eventually we as four partners uh, did raise the $70 million as the first time, uh, you know, um, team working together. And we deployed it across 11 investments. Um, and again, all of that was education. And uh, it was right from everything from preschool and daycare going all the way up to uh, you know, vocational training and it including it included K-12, it included, uh, you know, higher ed. Um, and, I, and I think that, again, the learning there was, uh, we saw failures as, as well as successes at Kaizen, right? Uh, we did have a couple of companies that um, uh, absolutely didn't give us any returns. And then we did have the uh, absolutely stellar ones that outperform. And there were so many learnings from there to take away from those entrepreneurs and, and you know, the mistakes we made as, as investors in, in supporting some of those entrepreneurs. Um, and I think that, you know, one of the things that I realized during that time at Kaizen is that, uh, you know, given the fact that we wanted to deploy this money across 11, 12 investments and we had $70 million to deploy, our, you know, sweet spot was about five, uh, five to $6 million. And, um, you know, that meant that we had to support companies that were not at an early stage. They were always mid-sized companies. Perhaps we were coming into the uh, round at, at Series B level. And uh, it didn't give me a chance to really uh, support companies at a, at a grassroots level, right, when they were at their very early stage. And somehow that was something that, that really excited me, especially because I'd been an entrepreneur. Uh, but on another note, uh, also, these are all for-profit investments, right? And pure private equity, where we were looking for, of course, um, you know, uh, double-digit returns. Um, and although we were, in a sense, a double-bottom-line fund, because education by default is, is impact, right? If you're touching any aspect of education. But I, it was all for-profit. It was all, uh, you know, the private sector. And I, um, till then, uh, you know, um, this is... This is um, we're talking about 2015, 2016, I had still never um, entered a public school in the country, right? Didn't know what that side of education looked like. Um, so I was thinking about how to really get into the impact space and, and uh, you know, the opportunity came my way to be at Omidyar Network uh, and they are an impact um, investor um, uh, based out of, uh, you know, the Valley, but they have... Uh, uh, a huge presence in India. And you know, I was brought on to lead uh, education investments for India. And uh, it was great because uh, there were two things that happened. One is, you know, I really wanted to see companies at a slightly earlier stage. So we did, uh, you know, early stage investments, pre-series A, series A at Omidyar. Uh, we did later stage as well, but, but we got to see a lot more companies at the early stage. Uh, but uh, also we did a lot of grants, right? Uh, we were happy to uh, use whatever tool in our box we had as long as the company was solving for a problem that we thought was pertinent. 
Um, and therefore, uh, we did a lot of grants as well. So right from, you know, a for-profit company like, uh, you know, Aspiring Minds of Edantu to a non-for-profit like Teach for India, Akshara Foundation, all of that was part of, uh, you know, a suite of, of uh, portfolios, companies. So, so that was a very rewarding experience. And I got to really see the other side, right? Uh, you're talking about public schools, you're talking about government schools, you're talking about um, education being delivered at scale, but where quality was really suffering. So it really gave me an insight into, into, uh, into that side of things, but also into the early stage investing. Uh, and from there on, I you know, moved into you know, mentoring and advising a whole bunch of young uh, edtech startups, still such time that I found this opportunity at the foundation. And then, and then here I was, again, helping young students thinking about entrepreneurship you know, as, a, as a potential journey to, to undertake. And it was awesome because I could bring all of this experience to try and think about what is it that a young student would truly need uh, to inspire themselves uh, towards an entrepreneurial journey. And what are all of the 360 degree uh, support systems we can provide to them to not only be successful, but to handhold them beyond the time uh, they are with us in our programs. That's a wonderful journey, right? I mean, we discussed how it's all come full circle today and I'm just blown away every time I listen to the journey and you've ha- you've gathered all of this amazing experience working with a PE firm and then going out and getting your MBA and then being part of a VC fund and now at the foundation. You've also spent a lot of time in the education sector and you didn't mention how that is one of the most impactful sectors to take about to think about it from more even from the ESG perspective. Now I would like to understand how have you seen the edtech sector in India evolve? you know, from where it was maybe a decade ago and what were the opportunities back then and how have those opportunities evolved along the way? And today, if I know you're not probably in, in the role of a VC, but you did mention that you do advise a lot of startups, maybe perhaps even put in an angel check every now and then. What are some things that are top of mind for you? Where are the loopholes in the ecosystem today? And what can founders be looking forward to? Now, if some of your students went back and listened to this episode, and if, you know, who knows, maybe they're looking into those challenges, what can you tell them and what can you tell others who are working in the edtech space and from your experience, where are the loopholes today that we're looking at in the industry? Yeah, that's a, that's a really deep and uh, insightful question. So let me say this, I think when I started off my journey, um, there were a lot of opportunities uh, in test prep, uh, because India as a market in general was uh, heavily skewed towards test prep, right? Uh, whether you go to school or college, uh, everyone takes a tuition, right? Everyone goes after school for a tuition or is studying for some entrance exam or, or if they're in college, they're going for some extra classes. Um, so I think in the early days uh, when I started uh, in my own entrepreneurial journey, but also when I started investing, uh, there were a lot of test prep companies that sprung up that were invested into that had IPOs. Um, and also uh, IT education. I mean, you know, we have the Aptex and the NIITs, right? Uh, and, and those were the lighthouse companies that you saw at that time that could really scale because those, that, that was really the pertinent need and the pain point that they were solving for, right? Um, skilling for IT. And uh, I mean, India was just emerging as the hub for IT at the time. So skilling for IT and then, you know, all of this test prep that uh, students were really um, looking for. Uh, but I think predominantly parents uh, thought of um, a school as a place where all of the learning happened, right? So uh, while uh, the, the, the tuition was paid for the school, there were a lot of K-12 services companies that we saw uh, early at that time that, you know, 
perhaps gave um, you know um, additional math or additional IT training or additional uh, language lab training, etc. So those were really the opportunities that we saw at that time that that we invested into um, at Kaizen. At, at the time, we we saw a, a white space in uh, uh, preschool and daycare, right? Uh, and uh, this was also because a lot of women wanted to come back into the workforce, and and that was our hypothesis and our theory of change. Um, that as women want to come back to the workforce, they will look for a professional daycare. And those are one of our early couple of investments that we made in daycare because we believe that uh, parents would want to have um, really professional daycare and preschooling for their kids while they could be at work and, and you know, not have to think and worry about um, uh, who's looking after their children. So, so I think those were some early, early um, um, green shoots of, you know, the kind of work in edtech that I saw uh, was rewarding and and, uh, and exciting. Uh, but move over to today, uh, which is about 12 or 13 years later, the landscape has changed so much. Um, COVID has in many ways kind of uh, really um, enhanced that. Uh, but I think it was anyway, um, you know, in, in, in on that path, right? Uh, we have so many unicorns in the ed tech space today. Uh, I mean, five or seven years ago, nobody would have imagined that. So definitely there are the Baijus and the Unacademies and the Vedantus and, you know, all of these large um, education companies that everybody talks about, Upgrad, of course, for, you know, professional uh, uh, education. Uh, but I think that um, the two or three spaces that I really see emerging um, as, as big spaces today, uh, outside of, uh, you know, the K-12, um, uh, as well as, uh, you know, the, the government job space, which is also large, uh, are two areas. Uh, one for me is, you know, because of the new education policy, there is this whole twinning and pathway programs where people can get dual degrees from Indian and foreign institutions. Uh, because maybe while a lot of uh, Indian students might aspire to go overseas, it's not affordable for everyone. And hopefully that can become more affordable now. And I can see a lot of companies emerging that will, that will be, uh, you know, um, uh, working in that space, right? The entire pathway twinning program uh, uh, space uh, where dual degrees will happen. Uh, and the other space that I think uh, I really see emerging and there's, there are just um, new shoots coming up, but I see that as the last space uh, is um, the after school program online, right? So I'm sure when we were younger, uh, we went for an art class or a music class or, a, you know, I mean, we didn't probably go for a coding class, but maybe an IT class or whatever. Uh, and today, all of that can happen online, right? So Whitehead Junior was one um, example of, of um, an after-school program that really uh, grew large, uh, but they were only focusing on one aspect of that, right? Uh, but I see a lot of young companies coming up today that are uh, where a parent, it's almost like a bouquet of offerings and a parent can, you know, say after school, I want my kids to learn these four things and they're, they're all available online and you can go and um, choose what you want from there. So I think that um, uh, those are the two areas that I see um, being very, very uh, important. And I think the other thing that from an NEP perspective that I see uh, being really important is, you know, 21st century skills, which kind of combines your pure academic work uh, to the future of work, right? And uh, somewhere uh, combining uh, those two and, and, you know, bridging the gap between those two uh, is 21st century skills and, and really... Um, you know, um, skills that are um, that are not always taught during your school and college years. And it could include things like communication and collaboration and critical thinking, you know, thinking out of the box, um, you know, problem solving skills. And I think those are the other 
kind of areas that I think will become critically important as we go ahead. Now, I'm glad you brought up the topic of future of work. And I personally am very bullish on the fact that that particular sector will go through a massive change in the coming years simply because once we graduate, I mean, what, what are we used to? I, I, I don't know about if, if you share the same sentiment as, as I do, but most of us, when we go to undergrad, especially in India, a lot of us are just going there because we need a base degree, right? We, we, we're kind of like doing that. And most of the learning happens either on the job or it's sometimes you're not even using some of the stuff that you study because some of that might be outdated. That's one of the reasons why I feel workforce reskilling is a very important sector. And that's going to see a lot of potential and a lot of attention will go towards these particular companies who are building products that, that capture people between the ages of, say, 26 to, say, 40. Because that those those 15 years are extremely crucial. You need to reskill yourselves every now and then to get to, I mean, whatever that next step it is in your career. And one other sector that I feel is very undertapped is the elderly uh, education. Uh, not a lot of people have been putting a lot of attention into that. There are a couple of companies that I know I've spoken with that are trying to target that. But, you know, it's it's boomer education, as, as, as one of the founders put it to me. That is a very important um, sort of sector, in my opinion, because that's massive opportunity for you to tap into an audience that is either... They, they want to go back and kind of like relive those days that they that they did back in like, you know, school and also have a social circle. And at the same time, catch up with stuff that the younger generation is, uh, you know, living with. I mean, I remember having conversations with my grandmother where she says, can you teach me how to use Instagram? This is like a couple of, couple of uh, years ago. And she's an active user of Instagram now. And the other day, like about a year ago, before TikTok got banned, she's like, what is TikTok? Can you talk to me about TikTok? So she's constantly learning about it. Now she's on Clubhouse. I have told her not to use it for anything. I've just told her to continue just listening to stuff and I've told, taught her how to use it. But just technology literacy is something that, uh, you know, people, the elderly people are really getting interested in because one, it just gives them an opportunity to connect with their grandkids or their kids for that matter. And more than anything else, it's also a time that they have a lot of time in the hand. It's just an opportunity for them to spend some more time in learning and just challenging themselves. And I think that's one of the uh, biggest sectors that is going untapped. And there might be one one or two companies that will come up and build something. Then you'll see an academy or a Baiju go out and acquire that because the LTV kind of increases, right? You know, Baiju is kind of starting off with, you know, at the very earliest of stages. And now if you can capture them all throughout their lives, then your LTV is almost 50 years. I mean, in between you drop the, you, you'll have a drop off but you're at least capturing people at every aspect of their learning journeys. So that I feel at least personally, I'm really excited about companies that are working towards the, um, the latter part of the tech sector. So let's see how that whole segment plays out. Um, now, apart from that, I mean, you didn't mention that you advise a lot of these companies and these founders. What are the challenges in your opinion that they're facing today compared to when you spoke to founders, maybe, you know, when you were at Omidyar, how have you seen the caliber of founders change? Yeah, I think there are two different halves. Um, the one thing I have to say about the current generation, and because we work with so many young students that are literally entrepreneurs coming out of campuses, I just have to say that the way they think about impact is something that I don't think my generation ever thought about. Every problem and idea, because we start at ideation stage, right? So we have an idea bank ourselves, but students come up with their own ideas. 
And what's amazing to see is that whether it's from a large tier one city and tier one college to whether it is a, you know, a, a small town uh, kid, they want to solve problems for their communities, for their country, for the environment, for the world. It's amazing to see that they're just committed to solving problems that just can make this world a better place. And I don't think we thought about life like that. I mean, you know, when we thought about entrepreneurship, it was, okay, well, here is something that is an interesting product that we can work on that can make the company money, right? I mean, and, and obviously there's a customer that has a need for it. But we never had such a deep thought about impact. And I, and I can say that um, for, for any, anything that, uh, you know, the, the generation today has, right? I mean, it could be just um, environmental health to edtech, clean energy, uh, women empowerment, all of those areas. I think they're extremely um, well-tuned to, uh, you know, understanding what kind of problems the community uh, wants to solve for and how they can really contribute to that. So I think that's the one half that I can talk about. Uh, on the other side, I think because, you know, most of the entrepreneurs you see, I mean, the, you know, the early stage entrepreneurs that you see today, they're probably in the age group of anywhere from, say, 22 to maybe um, 35. Uh, they also happen to be, a lot of them happen to be, you know, Gen Z and, and you know, the millennials. And therefore, um, they do have the sense of um, entitlement. Uh, but more importantly, they have the sense of, you know, wanting everything happening really quickly and immediately, right? And sometimes uh, I think, uh, you know, as a startup founder, uh, being patient about things is, is critically important, you know? And, uh, and, and so I do see in them this, this sense of wanting to get to places really quickly, like whatever they're strategy is or whatever their goals are and I feel some amount of patience would really work in their favor so so those are the two things I see um, as, as just different from when I was an entrepreneur and I started off or started seeing my first few investments versus the entrepreneurs that I see today now you know I wanted to circle back to one of the things that you'd mentioned in the earlier part of the podcast which was working with stakeholders and people in the industry to build this community of next generation of entrepreneurs how can people reach out to you? How can people work with you? Where are the opportunities for them to collaborate with the Badwani Foundation? And how are you encouraging people to, um, you know, come ahead and collaborate on certain projects that you're working with or initiatives that might that might come up in, in the near future? Uh, oh, so there are so many ways, uh, Akash. I think the first thing is, you know, for those that have been in the industry for really long and might be hearing this podcast, I think uh, if they feel the need to give back to uh, a younger community that's aspirational, I would really urge for them to connect with us and come forward as mentors, because I think building out a mentor network is so critical with all of the support that one can give a startup. Uh, I think uh, having a good mentor for a lot of startups has really, has really made the difference, right? And I think um, we are really working hard to create a mentor network and having that support would be wonderful. Uh, we also are working closely with a lot of um, funds that are looking at seed stage investments. Uh, we have, uh, you know, funds that are today dedicated to campus ventures. And we already, um, uh, you know, in negotiations, conversations, talks with some of them. But if there are others that are not already working with us, I would love to see them come and collaborate with us so that, you know, our young campus ventures uh, that are really promising can get funded. Because, you know, a lot of them, and this is something I didn't mention, you know, when we were talking about students, 
uh, very often, um, you know, students come from, um, uh, you know, uh, middle class backgrounds in India. They have a, a super problem that they are solving for. They have the tenacity to really work through uh, whatever needs to be done to, to be successful. But oftentimes, you know, their parents are, you know, tugging at them saying, hey, you know what, I've just spent so much money for you to finish your graduation, you know you're probably better off getting a job and, you know, bringing home some money or kind of at least being independent. Uh, and the last thing they want is to go back to their parents and say, hey, now can you give me a few more thousands or a few more lakhs so that I can bootstrap my startup and, you know, I can, I can move ahead. And uh, for those, I think it would be really great to, uh, to know that there is funding available if their ideas are, are uh, you know, um, uh, those that can really solve for important problems where they're seeing customer traction, where they're seeing, seeing some revenue traction. So I would really urge for investors to come forward and you know, look at some of our uh, campus ventures and see if they can support and help. Um, and then last but not the least, you know, we partner with a lot of other ecosystem partners because we do want people to come back and talk to our uh, students about their, you know, one of the things that we do is every week we hold a masterclass. Every other week, we hold uh, what we call an entrepreneur interaction. We want them to come and talk to our students about their stories, you know. You never know where a spark is lit and where someone gets inspired by someone's story. Uh, and we have them come and talk to us about both things, right? Their successes and also their failures, because I think people learn uh, as much from success as much as they learn from failures. And, and so we love to have them come and talk to our students about it. Um, but we also have other, you know, ecosystem partnerships. For example, we have tied up with AWS for giving, you know, credits to our students, you know, um, for their startups. Uh, we, we have um, uh, an ecosystem partnership with Razorpay, for example, for a fintech support for our startups, right? So uh, we're always open to any kind of support that we can give our startups that uh, we can handhold them better and support them better and, and help them towards success. So all of these areas and more, is, is what I would love to have uh, people in the ecosystem come and support us with. You know, I should have actually asked you this question way in the beginning, but we kept, we kept talking about students, right? And a lot of students end up listening to the podcast as well. How can somebody who's not within the network of the Vadwani Foundation from a student perspective reach out and, and probably get help? Is that possible for somebody to do or do you have to be within the network that you have built for them to get access to all of these resources? So no, absolutely. So uh, we have two ways that we get to students. One is, you know, we use um, colleges as a channel partner, right? Um, and we work with around 100 colleges across India. Uh, and we have about 12 to 15,000 students that work under our umbrella uh, through these colleges. Uh, but we have launched because of COVID, uh, like I said, it forced us to think digitally and we've, we've launched digital courses. In fact, we've also gone downstream and started launching courses for high school students who are in 11th and 12th grade and early college students, but also late college students and professionals. So these are digital programs that are available online. Uh, they are, I mean, you know, anyone can go to the Vadwani Foundation uh, website and they will, be, uh, they will be directed to our site. And these are, uh, these are programs that are at no cost to students. So they can absolutely... Um, come to us and, and do that anytime, anywhere. It's a self-paced learning module so they can actually avail of our programs no matter where they are in India or globally. Okay, you know what? That's actually a wonderful note to end the podcast on because we really want students to go out, check out the website and perhaps even get in touch with you, especially the ones who are not within the network right now. 
And uh, if there's any way they can get in touch with you or your team, uh, would you want to mention how they can do so apart from just the website? Is there an, an email that they can drop? Sure, absolutely. So it's nenglobal.org. So they can definitely get to the website. Uh, and um, if they can definitely write to me, I'd be so happy to hear from them. So it's monica, M-O-N-I-C-A dot mehta, M-E-H-T-A at wfglobal.org. That's fantastic. I'm sure a lot of people will write to you right after listening to this episode. Thank you, Monica, for your time. It was fantastic to learn about your journey, what you're doing with the foundation and the kind of impact that you're creating. I'm really looking forward to the unicorn that you already mentioned coming out of one of your programs and hope to see one of your students go out and build a really, really big company for India and employ a number of uh, people in, in the near future. Thank you, Akar. This has been wonderful. And I think it's it's great. It's great that you're trying to do this for you know, the ecosystem in India. I, I think it's great for people to hear about each other's stories. And, and I think that, you know, entrepreneurship as a journey itself is a story, right? So stories people hear, the more inspired they get. And I, and I am glad you're doing this. I really enjoyed speaking to Monica on the show. She had some really good insights about how the foundation is creating impact, jobs, and more importantly, literacy, especially in the entrepreneurship space please feel free to get in touch with Monica or drop me a note and I'll be more than happy to connect you with her. We need more people like her and the foundation to be adding more impact at the grassroots level. Well, if you're like me and you enjoyed that episode, please go ahead and rate and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps others discover the show as well. Until then, keep hustling, everybody. See you on the flip side.